Well, welcome back. Uh, we are in Romans chapter 11 today. Just kidding. Romans chapter 10 today. Nobody even paid it. Nobody even blinked an eye. That's the really sad part about that. We're in Romans chapter 10 today. And we're going to go ahead and begin at verse 14. Where Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. One of the things you'll notice about the Apostle Paul and his epistles is that Paul always begins with doctrine. He believes that doctrine matters. What we believe, what we profess is of significance. But Paul never leaves it with doctrine. It's not just some sort of academic exercise or intellectual exercise that we are engaged in as Christians. There should be a practical element to what we believe. And so you'll notice that Paul always starts with doctrine, but toward the end of his letters, he will begin to talk about practical things. What does this mean in our day-to-day -day living? It was once said of an English clergyman that he was so heavenly-minded, he was of no earthly good to anyone. And the Apostle Paul does not want to be like that. Paul wants us to understand that there are implications for our everyday lives when it comes to believing the gospel. And he's beginning to talk about some of those things here in Romans chapter 10. He's talking about the, the need for us to share the good news with those around us. And it's a very logical argument that he makes here. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the latter part of verse 13. Everybody without exception, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Have I gone off? No, I'm still on, I think. Not as loud as I was, I'm sorry, but I'm still there. You're still receiving, I hope. I'm, I'm still transmitting at any rate. But the point is that Paul is saying that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what that background is, they will be saved. But, he says, in order for them to call on the name of the Lord, they have to hear the gospel. And in order for them to hear the gospel... Somebody has to be prepared to take that message to them. And this is not just the responsibility of the clergy. This is not just the responsibility of those who held the apostolic office. That is their primary task as apostles. That is the primary task of the members of the clergy. But it is not the exclusive task of either of those two groups. It is the responsibility of every Christian. I pointed out to you when we talked about this last, that you and I were ordained. Now, I was ordained as a deacon. I was ordained as a priest. But you were ordained as well. You were ordained at the time of your baptism. To manfully fight is what the new prayer book says, echoing the older prayer books, to manfully fight under the banner of Jesus Christ. So we all have a responsibility. Now, that makes many people very nervous. 
Um, they think, well, I don't feel equipped to go ahead and share the gospel. I, I don't feel as though I'm adequate to the task. St. Francis, when he sent out his missionaries, did it in an interesting way. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. In other words, the way we live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves in business and life, that in and of itself can be a witness. But it does not preclude the necessity of a verbal witness. Because if somebody looks at the way you're living and they see that you're living in a way that is countercultural, they see that you're living in a way that is contrary to the way that the culture is living, you are living in a different way. If they see that you're a salmon, as it were, a spiritual salmon swimming upstream, they're eventually going to ask the question, why are you different? And you need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. So we all have to be prepared to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say this, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We live in a culture that is obsessed with physical beauty. It's been said that if you have the gold and silver coins that our culture values, you can go anywhere and you can do anything. What are the gold and silver coins? They are good looks and intellect. <coughs> that if you are smart and you are good looking, you can pretty much do anything. That's one of the reasons why we prize education, because we realize that not everybody is good looking. Not everybody has the gold coin, but we can certainly hope that we can have the silver coin. But if you have those two things, well, you can do anything. You can go almost anywhere because we are obsessed with outward appearances. I think a lot of this is due to the fact that we live in the age of Hollywood. You know, we live in the age of, of mass media. One historian commented that if Abraham Lincoln were to run for president today, he would never get elected. Now, we know he'd never get elected in Charleston anyway, but that's beside the point. But why wouldn't he get elected? Because in a media age, he doesn't look like what we think a president ought to look like. He was not a particularly attractive individual, but he was an extraordinary individual. See, we want somebody to look presidential. I mean, you think about the members of the royal family, the ones that they put all of the attention on. I don't know how many of you have watched the series The Crown. Uh, this whole season has been about Princess Diana. The whole world was obsessed with Princess Diana. When she died 20-some years ago, everybody just went into mass hysteria. The loss of this beautiful young woman. So we're attractive to outward appearance. And just think about some of those people who are up there on the screen. Most of them, I'm sure, are recognizable to you. You'll notice that I put some up there from a particular point in Hollywood history. So if you don't recognize the younger ones, I know you'll recognize the older ones. <laughs> but all of those people are what? They're famous. They have people that follow them. They have their own Instagram pages and thousands of followers and they are all, every single one of them, have this much in common. They are beautiful people. There's no denying the fact they are beautiful people. 
Well, here in this passage from Romans, Paul talks about the beautiful people in God's eyes. How does God regard beauty? And I think it becomes very clear what God regards as beautiful is not an outward appearance, but rather an inward beauty. Now, there's a great example of this in the Old Testament. Um, keep your finger there in Romans and turn, if you will, back to 1 Samuel. And this is the story of the calling of King David. Israel had been living under a series of judges, but the people became envious of the nations around them that had kings, that had monarchs. You know, we Americans are fascinated by the British royal family, which, quite frankly, as a student of history, I find a little strange. I mean, we fought an entire revolution to throw off the shackles of a king and kingly rule, and yet people are fascinated by it. We, we, we just love the pomp, the ceremony, the pageantry that is associated with the British royal family. We can't get enough of them. Well, that's the way it was in the Old Testament. The, the Hebrew people looked around and they saw these other nations that had pomp and ceremony, and they wanted the same thing. And so they went to God and they said that they wanted a king. And God's response to them initially was, well, you have a king, I am your king. And they said, ah, yes, that's right, yes, and, and, and of course we, we acknowledge that, but we really want somebody in the flesh that we can look at that sort of represents your majesty and your glory and all of those things. And so God relented. He said, this is against my better judgment, so to speak. He says, but I'll give you a king, and he gave them a king, and that first king was Saul. Now, if you remember, Saul started off pretty well. But you know, in life, it's not how you start off. It's how you finish that really matters. You know, think about this. Life is filled with examples of people who started off well. But because they finished poorly, they are regarded as the great failures of history. On the other hand... History is filled with examples of people who may not have started off all that well, but because they finished strong, are numbered among the greats. How many of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire? If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, won the Academy Award in the early 1980s, it tells the story of two runners. One of them is Jewish, and one of them is Christian. Remember who the Christian was? Eric Little. Very good. And the Jew was Harold Abrahams. Now they are running for two different reasons. One is running to prove something to himself and to others, and the other one is running for the glory of God. Now the story of Eric Little is a remarkable one. You know the story of how he refused to run on Sunday and all of that. But what I find interesting about Eric Little is the story of when they were actually training for the Olympics to get on the Olympic team. They were running a race in Glasgow in Scotland, and Eric Little was expected to win the race. But when the starting gun went off, one of the other runners, in an act of aggression, 
stepped in front of Eric and tripped him. Now, in a race like that, when you're running against the best runners in the nation, even the fraction of a second can spell the difference between victory and defeat. He tumbled, he took a hard fall on the infield, and by the time he was back on his feet and had his senses about him, the other runners were already several yards down the track. His great moan went up from the crowd, and there were shouts of foul, foul, all across the stands because this runner should have been disqualified. But all of a sudden, Eric got back on the track, and he started running. And one man who was sitting next to an old man from Glasgow commented that it was a fool's errand. He said, there's no way that he's going to be able to make up the deficit. And the old man just sat there silently. His eyes peeled on Eric Little. And Eric was running and running and running. And finally, he caught up with the pack. But there were still lead runners far ahead. And this young man again turned to the old man and he said, there's no way, there's, there's absolutely no way that he's going to be able to make up the deficit. And the old man finally had had enough and he turned to him and he said, ah, just watch lad. He said, his head's not back yet. And Eric Little had this very unorthodox way of running. He would always cock back his head, open wide his mouth, and with his arms flailing at his side, he would take off. And that's what he did. He cocked back his head, opened wide his mouth, and he took off, and they said it was like watching Mercury with wings on his feet. He made his way through the pack. He caught up with the lead runners, and in the final moment of the race, in a great heroic burst of energy, he burst through the tape and fell hyperventilating on the track. He won the race. He'd snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. People couldn't believe it. One of the trainers that was there came to his aid, and as he was helping Eric Little to his feet, he said, well, Mr. Little, that was not the prettiest race I've ever seen, but it certainly was the bravest. Now, that's a case of not starting off well, but finishing well. And that's why we remember Eric Little. But Saul was just the opposite. He started off well. First of all, he was handsome. He looked kingly. He was handsome. He was intelligent. He was strong. He'd been heroic in battle. But as time went by, as often happens with people like that, he became proud. He became puffed up. He began to violate the commandments of God and do things that were not expected of a king. And in the end, we're told that God rejected him. And God went to the prophet Samuel and he said, I have rejected Saul and there's going to be a new king in the land. Now, Samuel had a hard time with that because he liked Saul. He'd been there in the early days and he'd seen Saul filled with so much promise. And again, he looked like a king. And so Samuel, we're told, continued to mourn. He was reluctant to to forsake Saul. And finally the Lord said to him, I've had enough of this, Samuel. How long are you going to mourn for Saul? I have rejected him and I have chosen another king. You are to go to the town of Bethlehem, yes, that Bethlehem, 
to the home of a man by the name of Jesse, and you are to anoint one of his sons as the new king over the nation. And so we're told that that is exactly what Samuel did. And we're going to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being the king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, he saw the first of Jesse's sons and Eliab was like Saul. He looked like a king. He was handsome, tall, impressive, strong. Surely this is the one. Okay, I don't want to get rid of Saul, but oh, this, this one will be a good substitute. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And I think at this point, at least this is the way I imagine it, Abinadab didn't quite look as good as his older brother, but he was still, these were handsome boys. They were good-looking boys. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse replies, well, there is the youngest, but he's just a shepherd. It can't be him. Go back and ask the Lord. It's got to be one of these others. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. But he was not as impressive as his brothers. He was a mere boy. But the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for he is he. And David, as you know, would go on to become the great king of Israel. And through David's line would come that one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks what? On the heart. That's what God is concerned with. God is not concerned merely with outward beauty. God is concerned with inward beauty. That's what impresses the Lord. 
Now, that is not to imply that there is no such thing as outward beauty. That's not to say that these are merely subjective categories. You know, sometimes that's what we say. We say, oh, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes. But let's be honest, there are just some things that are not attractive. There are some things that at first glance are just not all that appealing. We recognize that. There are certain things that are just pleasing to us, and the Bible acknowledges that. Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, think on these things. Well, if you're to think on the things that are noble, the things that are lovely, that implies that those are not subjective categories, those are objective categories. There are some things, quite frankly, that are just beautiful, that are just lovely, that are just appealing. And there are some things that categorically are not. Furthermore, the psalmist talks about looking upon the Lord and basking in his beauty. So the Old Testament makes it very clear that God himself is beautiful. So no, these are not necessarily subjective categories. There are things that are objectively beautiful. And there are people, let's just go ahead, you saw some of them up there on the screen, who are objectively beautiful. Let me just see if I can go back. I don't know if I can, but... Listen, folks, those are good-looking people. How many of you would like to be like that? I mean, one of the great hopes that we have as Christian people is that when we die, we're going to get a new body. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. I have a, a picture in my office that shows me standing with two bishops um, who are great heroes of mine. One was Bishop Alden Hathaway of Pittsburgh, who I mentioned last week, and the other one was Bishop Michael Nazarali, who was one of the senior bishops in the Church of England and a, and a great champion for the gospel cause. And I've gotten to know these men over the years, and we've become friends. And I'm standing there in this picture with these two giants of the faith, and one of our clergymen, who shall remain nameless, um, picked up that picture. He'd never seen it before, and he picked it up, and he said, who are these people? And I said, well, that's Bishop Hathaway, and that's Bishop Nazarali. And he said, that's not you. And I said, yeah, that's me. And it just kind of blurted out of his mouth, what happened to you? You know, this Sunday is his last Sunday with us, and I'm really sorry about that. But one thing is for certain, and we fight against it, but one thing is for certain, and that is the fact that physical beauty, let's just go ahead and admit it, does not last. And it's a wonderful thing. Google. You're watching a television show. And Kristen and I are always behind the times. We, we're, we're always watching shows that ended 10 years ago that everybody else has moved on by. But it's sometimes fun as you're watching this and you think to yourself, I wonder where they are today. And you Google them and the picture comes up and you're like, oh my gosh, what happened to them? <laughs> because when you're watching a television show or a movie, you're seeing them caught in time and you think that's how they always look. And that's not the case, is it? 
we all recognize that physical beauty, all of those people up there on the screen do not look like that. Now, some of them are dead. They definitely don't look like that. But even those that are alive, they don't look like that anymore. It is a case of diminishing returns. This is why I always warn young couples when they come in, I'll often say, well, what is it that attracted you to each other? Well, I think she's beautiful. Well, that's great. Or I think he's handsome. That's great. But if that is the cement that is holding your relationship together, I want you to understand, young man, young woman, that there is this thing, it's called gravity. <laughs> and sooner or later, it's going to affect all of you. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't work at looking our best. Absolutely. But we do need to understand that physical beauty is fading. It does not last. And it's not the thing that we should prize above all else. In fact, if we prize it above all else we might not find that Jesus himself is all that attractive. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. It's very interesting in the midst of this talk about beauty and the beauty of those who preach the gospel, Paul invokes a passage. It's Isaiah chapter 53. This is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament because it was written centuries before Jesus ever appeared on the scene, and yet it is an accurate depiction of the Messiah. It's known as the suffering servant. This is a description of Jesus, his life, and his ministry, and I want you to note how it begins. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I want you to think about it. Those words were written centuries before Jesus ever appeared on the scene, and that is an apt description of his entire life and ministry. And yet how is Jesus described here as one who had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him? As a consequence, he was what? Despised and rejected by men. Well, that's really quite remarkable because Paul, writing to the Philippians, said that Christ did have majesty. He did have glory. He did have beauty. But for us men and for our salvation, he set all of those things aside and he came down. And he took the form of a servant. Nothing about him that was extraordinary. This was not Sean Connery. This was just a regular person and not all that attractive to begin with. And yet he is the means by which we have been saved. See, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. If you are obsessed with physical outward beauty... And again, there's nothing wrong with trying to look your best, but if that's how you measure the worth of an individual, then Jesus Christ perhaps would not be all that appealing to you had you met him on the street. How many of you remember the old expression, beauty is as beauty does? Anybody heard that expression? Maybe your mother or your grandmother used that expression. Well, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans. Paul is saying... Beauty is as beauty does. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. C. Everett Koop was the Surgeon General of the United States, one of the more colorful Surgeon Generals of the United States. Um, perhaps you remember he was appointed by President Reagan as the Surgeon General. It was during his tenure as Surgeon General that cigarette packages got their first warnings on them. But C. Everett Koop was a devout Christian. Um, before he became Surgeon General of the United States, he was the head of the Pediatric Surgery Department at the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center. Uh, he was an extraordinary doctor. But he realized that in order for the doctors and the surgeons to do their work, the nurses were invaluable. The nurses were invaluable, that when he was engaged in a surgery, a very delicate surgery, working on a child, for example, having a nurse there who could almost anticipate his every need, who was almost prescient in her way that she could recognize what he was going to need, he said that was just a remarkable thing. And every year at Christmas, he would hang out a great banner going into the operating theater, and it said, 
through these doors past the most beautiful women in the world. Now, he didn't mean that all of those women were models. He didn't mean that they all looked like Halle Berry or Marilyn Monroe. But what he meant was that what they did and the way they did it and the sacrifices that they made made them beautiful. It made them beautiful. And Paul says that's what makes people beautiful in the eyes of God. Beauty is as beauty does. And the beautiful people, as far as God is concerned, are not those who look good on the outside, but whose beauty will fade eventually. But it's those who are beautiful on the inside whose beauty never fades, it never diminishes, and it is based solely and completely not on how they look, but on what they do. And Paul puts it to us in such a powerful way because he doesn't just say, how beautiful are those who bring the good news? He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? I don't know about you, but I do not find feet to be the most attractive part of the body. Most of us don't. I suppose there are those who have a fetish for feet, but most people don't. We acknowledge the fact that the feet are just not an attractive part of the body. And yet Paul says that even the feet of the people who bring good news are what? Beautiful in God's eyes. Now, this would have been a shocking statement, particularly in the first century. I mean, you have to put yourself in the first century context for Paul to say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You understand that in the first century, nobody went and had a pedicure. <laughs> nobody went and had their nails done. In those days, people wore sandals. And they traveled on dusty roads, not paved roads with animal refuse. Feet were horrible. They were dirty. When Jesus washed the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper, that was an act of great humility. When you went into a Jewish house, the first thing that the person did when you went into the house is that they gave you a bowl, a basin, for you to wash your feet rather than track all of that stuff through their house. Jesus talks about this on one occasion where a woman came in while he was reclining at table with the Pharisees. And this woman came in. She was a sinner, a notorious woman of the town. And we're told that she broke open an alabaster jar and she began to anoint Jesus' feet and wet them with her tears. And the host turned to some of the others and he said, does he understand what kind of a woman she is that is doing this to him? And Jesus overhears this and he said, I tell you the truth, I came into your house, you didn't even give me a basin to wash my feet, and here she is washing my feet with her tears. And Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How many of you long to be beautiful? Oh, come on. I mean, I, don't tell me you don't. I've never met a single person who longs to be ugly. I mean, let's be honest, or homely. We all want to be beautiful. 
But don't you want to be beautiful in God's eyes? Don't you want to be appealing to God, attractive to God? When God looks at you, he says, oh, how beautiful she is. How beautiful he is. Are you bringing good news to others? Are you sharing the faith? Are you being the aroma of Christ to those around you? That is what it means to be beautiful in the sight of God. You probably all heard of Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester. He was executed in 1555 during the reign of Queen Mary. He was a bishop in the Church of England. He was executed along with another bishop in the Church of England, a man by the name of Nicholas Ridley. Uh, they both were Protestants in an age of the Reformation, and they were executed. And as they were tied to the stake and the flames were being lit, Nicholas Ridley, who was the younger of the two, became a little anxious. And Hugh Latimer, who was the older of the two, said, Take heart, Master Ridley, for we shall this day light such a fire under England as I trust shall never be put out. And ultimately they did. They inspired thousands to the Protestant cause during the time of the English Reformation by their death. Well, Hugh Latimer was this great giant. That's what we always remember, but he wasn't always that. He had once spoken out harshly against the Reformation. He had attacked Philip Melanchthon, who was one of Luther's right-hand men. He'd been a clergyman. He'd gone to Cambridge University. He was highly educated, and he was good-looking. He was handsome. He was impressive. He had everything going for him, but he was not a believer. He was ordained, but he wasn't a believer. Believe it or not, there are such people. <laughs> now, in the place where he was serving, there was a monk. They referred to him as Little Bilney. You know, when you get a nickname like that, it's not a compliment. <laughs> Little Bilney was the opposite of Hugh Latimer. When Hugh Latimer walked into a room, everybody's attention went to Latimer. When Bilney walked into the room, he was basically invisible. But little Bilney had heard the gospel and he'd received it and his life had been changed by it. And he wanted as many people as possible to hear the good news. You know, if you're a Christian, you should not only have a desire to share the gospel with others, but you ought to be thinking strategically. How can I do this effectively? That's what Paul was always doing. Paul was always thinking, how do I get the gospel out to as many people as possible? What can I possibly do to be effective? And that's the way it was with little Bilney. He didn't have much to offer, but he loved the Lord. He had a zeal for the lost. And he was thinking strategically. And he thought to himself, nobody's going to listen to me. But they'll listen to Hugh Latimer if I can just get the gospel to Hugh Latimer. And one day as the church service was breaking up, little Bilney came up and he grabbed Hugh Latimer by the arm. And he said, sir, will you hear my confession? Now that was the obligation of a priest in the Middle Ages to hear confessions. And so Hugh Latimer probably looked at Bilney and rolled his eyes and said, oh, all right. And they went to some place in the church 
And they sat down and Hugh Latimer said, let me hear your confession. And Bilney proceeded to confess the gospel to him. And Hugh Latimer, for the first time, heard that message in a way that he'd never heard it before, and it changed his entire life. Years later, he would say, had it not been for little Bilney, he would have never come to faith. And he would go on to have an influence over thousands and thousands of people as a consequence. Little Bilney wasn't much to look at, but he was beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. He was precious in the sight of God. How about you? Are you beautiful in the eyes of the Lord? C.S. Lewis, in an essay entitled The Weight of Glory, talked about the way that we should look at other people as Christians. We should have a different perspective. Lewis says, you've never met an ordinary man or woman, ever. That's what Bill Nee understood. Here's how Lewis put it in The Weight of Glory. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Lewis is right there, you know. Every single one of us was created for eternity. You know, we talk about death as being the end. You do understand that death is not the end. We were created for eternity. We were made in the image of God. In the same way that God is eternal, you and I are going to spend eternity. We're going to spend eternity in one of two places. We're going to spend eternity with God where we are transformed from glory into glory, made like unto Jesus Christ, the most beautiful person who ever lived. Or we are going to live forever separated from God in hell. And that place where we will turn inward on ourselves and become the ugliest, most grotesque thing imaginable. But Lewis is right. You never meet a normal person. You might meet an ordinary dog, but you don't meet an ordinary person. Every single one of us is created for eternity. And we're either going to be like gods and goddesses that when on our glorified state, somebody here on this earth were to meet us, they would be tempted to fall down and worship us like people were tempted to fall down and worship the angels or we're going to be turned into something horrible by virtue of our own selfishness. He goes on, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Do you have a heart for the lost? 
hard for those who do not know Christ? Are you helping them on the way to becoming gods and goddesses, everlasting splendors, or not? Are you beautiful in the eyes of the Lord? You may be precious to him. To a parent, even the ugliest child is precious. But the question is, are you beautiful in the eyes of the Lord? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That's what Paul says. But then he goes on in the next verse to say something that seems rather shocking. He's been talking about the necessity of sharing the gospel, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but they can't hear, they can't call on the name of the Lord unless they've heard the gospel, and they can't hear the gospel unless somebody is prepared to preach it to them, and nobody can preach it to them unless they are first sent. If they do go, if they do preach, well, they're beautiful in God's eyes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be successful. See, that's something else that we need to remember. We like successful people. We're attracted to beautiful people, and we're attracted to what? Successful people. And what Paul is saying, the beautiful in the eyes of the Lord are not those who have an outward appearance of beauty, but an inward appearance of beauty. They're the little bilneys of the world. Well, that's very different from the way that the culture looks at things. And he said the same is true when it comes to preaching the gospel. The world admires successful people. The Lee Iacocas who take a a struggling company like Chrysler and manage to turn it around. But he says, those who bring the good news, by the standards of the world, oftentimes they're not successful at all. Again, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul talks about the necessity of sharing the gospel, the beauty of those who share the gospel, but he also acknowledges the reality of failure. You know, you read most books by missionaries, and they're filled with stories of how they've gone out and struggled and shared the gospel, and people have turned from their sin to faith in Christ. And that's wonderful. I mean, you want to put a positive spin on things. Nobody's going to want to go out into the mission field if they're guaranteed a failure. They want to know that God is going with them. But we need to understand, and Paul's a realist here, that even when we go out and share the gospel, even when we are beautiful in God's eyes, not everyone is going to accept our word. Not everyone is going to respond to the gospel. Sometimes we think if we just go with enthusiasm, if we just go with sincerity, then people will certainly hear the message, they'll feel our sincerity, and they'll respond to the gospel. And he says it's simply not true. Paul is speaking about himself here. He's saying, I took the gospel to the Jews, and he says, not all believed. Let me tell you something. That's a massive understatement. 
When he said not many believed, he might as well have said hardly anybody believed. Because that was the truth when it came to Paul. It wasn't a case where, oh, a goodly number or even a majority, hardly anybody believed. Here he was trying to do the Lord's work, trying to be faithful, trying to be strategic, and the results were meager at best. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 13. I want to show you something. It's a pattern in Paul's ministry. Those of you who went through my study in Acts, we highlighted this section of the gospel because it's really important. It's the beginning of the missionary era. Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas had been sent off by the church in Antioch. They traveled down to a seaside port called Seleucia. They took a boat and went over to the Isle of Cyprus, and they preached around the Isle of Cyprus, and they faced opposition on Cyprus. It was there that one of their traveling companions, a young man by the name of John Mark, deserted them and went home. But Paul and Barnabas pressed on, and they went up to the continent to another Antioch. The Antioch that had sent them out was Antioch in Syria. This was Pisidian Antioch. And while we're there, we're told that they went into the synagogue. You pick up the text in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said. And what Paul does at this point is he goes on to preach the gospel. He basically traces the whole history of Israel, how God had been at work in the lives of the Israelite people, to ultimately bring about the coming of a Messiah. And then he gives them the punchline, the Messiah who's been anticipated, that everybody's been longing for, O come, O come, Emmanuel, he has finally come in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a revelation to these people. They'd never heard anything like that before. And so we're told that when the service broke apart, they begged Paul to come back. Verse 42, And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And then, a lot can happen in a week's time. We want you to come back. We've never heard this message before. We're, we're curious about this. Paul, Barnabas, can you stay for a week and come back? next Sunday, and, and, and we'll give you the pulpit again, and you can preach. And Paul and Barnabas said, okay. The next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. But when the Jews 
saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice, glorifying the word of the Lord. Here was Paul, first missionary journey, first big city that he comes to. He preaches the gospel, and the majority of the people what? Reject him. His own people reject him. They reject the gospel. Now, Paul gave it everything that he had. And what you'll notice is that Paul goes on from there to another city called Iconium. And guess what happens in Iconium? Precisely the same thing, except that we're told that Jews from Antioch pursued Paul to Iconium and stirred up trouble against him there. And so he left Iconium and he went on to Lystra. And in Lystra, the situation was even worse. Paul was physically attacked, stoned into an unconscious state, and dragged outside the city and left for dead. That's why I say it's a massive understatement here in Romans when he said, yes, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. That's what I have been doing. But not everybody's believed. The reality is hardly anybody had believed. Turn now to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. You're in Romans, so 1 Corinthians is the next book. 2 Corinthians is the book after that. Not hard to find. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is talking about some of the things that he has endured for the sake of the gospel. Beginning chapter 11, verse 24, he writes these words. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That was a severe flogging, folks. Most people did not survive a flogging like that. Tremendous, massive loss of blood. And Paul says, he received that kind, 39 lashes, at the hands of the Jews five times over the course of his ministry. Five times. Three times he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, etc., etc. Who beat Paul five times? 39 lashes. The Jews. Who were the people that stirred up persecution against Paul in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby? The Jews. When he says in Romans, I've been out there doing the work of the Lord, preaching the gospel, and he says, and not many believed. Listen, folks, that is, as I said, a massive understatement. Hardly anybody believed. And yet Paul was not surprised by the rejection. 
He quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, that picture of the suffering servant. He says, who has believed our message? He understood that Jesus was not received by many. You know, if you look at Jesus' ministry from a worldly point of view, he would have been an abject failure, wouldn't he? I mean, he started off well. He had thousands following him up there in Galilee. At one point, 5,000, in excess of 5,000. We're told 5,000 men. That didn't count women and children when he fed the multitude. But toward the end of his ministry, many of those followers had fallen away. There was only a handful of people there when Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. From a worldly point of view, Jesus would have been a failure at that point. From a worldly point of view, Paul was a failure at that point. If you are going to share the gospel with people, you need to understand that from a worldly point of view, you are probably going to have very meager results. One of the things I miss most about living where I do right now is that I do not have a yard. And it's not because I have children anymore where, you know, they can play in the yard. I miss mowing the grass. Now you say, well, man, you can come over to my place and mow the grass anytime. Why do I miss mowing the grass? Because it was one of the few things that I do as a minister where I can see instant results. I can look at the job and say, I accomplished something. Many ministers go through their whole life sharing the gospel, pouring out the good news, never knowing if from a worldly point of view it's making any difference whatsoever. That's just a reality, folks. That's the way Christian ministry is. Paul left many of those places not wondering or not knowing for sure, wondering whether or not anybody had really received the message. Wondering if any difference was being made. And that could be very frustrating. But one of the things that I find so remarkable about the Apostle Paul is that even though many people did not receive his message, he never became embittered. How does he begin? Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, for they are Israelites. Paul was afflicted, rejected, his message was not received by his own people, but he never became angry. He never became embittered. Instead, the only thing that that rejection did was to fill his heart with a sense of anguish and love for the lost. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I want you to understand, if you want to be a beautiful person in the eyes of the Lord, you need to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around you. But there is no guarantee that when you do that, your message is going to be well received. There's no guarantee that the world is going to see you as attractive or your message as attractive. In fact, the chances are you're probably going to be, for the most part, mocked, scorned, laughed, ridiculed, rejected. That is most likely going to be the case. 
And we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus talked about that with his disciples. In fact, he told a parable on one occasion that was meant to help them understand this point. It's in Matthew chapter 13. I know you're familiar with it. It's a wonderful parable. For me, it's probably my famous favorite parable. Chapter 13, verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. They did not have much soil, and immediately sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, sometimes when you hear one of Jesus' parables, you can be a little puzzled by it. You know, well, what is this, what is this parable really trying to teach us? You know, like, like the parable of the workers in the vineyard, when we're told that the vineyard owner, he hired some men to work in the early part of the day, and then later on he goes out at noon and he hires more, and then at the end of the day, just an hour before quitting, he goes out and he hires more, and when it comes time to pay, they all get the same pay? Yeah. You say, hey, look, that guy's going to be out of business in no time. That, that parable is one that you sort of have to work through. You kind of have to try and figure out exactly what Jesus is trying to say here. But there's no mystery about this one. We know exactly what this parable is all about, exactly what Jesus means. Why? Because he told his disciples. They didn't get it at first. But you turn suddenly to verse 18. And Jesus explains the parable of the sower. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for that which was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, well, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. We know exactly what this parable is about. This parable is about the human heart. And Jesus is basically saying there are four types of hearts. Now, as with all of Jesus' parables, what we are meant to do is to engage in a period of self-analysis. We're supposed to look at ourselves and ask, what kind of a heart do I have here? What is my heart like? See, this parable, we call it the parable of the sower, but it's not about the sower. Who's the sower? Those beautiful people who bring the good news. In the ancient world, when you 
sowed seed. You, you didn't do it like we plant flowers today, you know, take a trowel and dig a little hole and, and put the seed in or put the plant in. No, in those days, you plowed your fields, furrows long and deep, and then the sower went out. You've seen the um, symbol for Simon & Schuster Publishing Company? It's a sower. You see it on the spine of the books. He would reach into his haversack and simply throw out the seed, and the seed would fall on various types of soil. And that's what Jesus is describing here. And he's saying, people are like those four types of soil. Some people's hearts are like the hard soil. It's like the hard path that when the seed falls on it, it just glances off. The hard path is that path that has been used by animals and, and by people for so long that it, it's just packed down hard like rock. You throw a seed on it, and the seed just bounces right off. He said, some people's hearts are like that. Over the years, their hearts have been turned away from God. You know, if you turn away from God long enough, that's what's going to happen to your heart. You're going to have a hardening of the heart. It's like working with a, a screwdriver, and you're not accustomed to doing manual labor, and you get a blister. If you keep working on that Long enough, that blister is going to turn into a what? A callus. And while the blister is painful, the callus becomes desensitized to the pain eventually. It becomes hardened. It's no longer responsive to pain or to stimuli. And Jesus says some people's hearts are like that. This is why I always warn people when they say, well, I know I need to get serious about the Lord, and I intend to. Young people often think about this. They think, well, I'm going to get serious about the Lord, but right now I'm having a good time. But I know, and eventually I will. And they somehow think that it's going to work out that way. Well, if you're not going to get serious about the Lord for the next 15 years, what are you going to be doing in the meantime? I can tell you what you're going to be doing in the meantime. Sinning. You're going to be doing your own thing. And that sinning is not going to make you more receptive to the Lord. It's going to harden your heart to the things of the Lord. And when the gospel comes in 15 years, it's going to glance right off. And the devil's going to come and just snatch away that word. That's what Jesus says. Some people's hearts are like that. Some people's hearts, he said, are like shallow soil. Not much depth, but it's not the hard path. And when the word comes and it falls on that shallow soil, it grows up quickly. But there's not much root there. And as soon as life becomes difficult or disappointments come in or people don't measure up to your expectations or God forbid you discover that there are hypocrites in the church. What happens? Well, your faith shrivels up. It shrivels up because it doesn't have any root to it. You know the kind of people, they show up for church and initially they're really excited. This is new, this is novel. I've never seen anything like this before. This is really good. But then they get to know the people in the church and they don't really measure up. And you'd seen them for all these weeks and then all of a sudden you, they miss a week. But they're back the next week, and then they mix the next two weeks, but then they're back for two weeks, and then they're gone for a month, and before long, you don't see them at all. 
There's a third type of heart and soil. And Jesus said, this is that which is infested with weeds and thorns and thistles. He said, the soil there has potential. But as the plant begins to grow up, the weeds choke out the life and make it unfruitful. And Jesus said, this is the heart that is concerned with wealth and physical possessions. That's the most important thing. Giving to the Lord or going on the vacation, I'm going on the vacation. And the thorns and the thistles strangle out the life and it is not fruitful, it perishes. And then there's the fourth type of soil and Jesus said, that's the good soil. And the seed that falls in the good soil takes root and it grows up and it does produce fruit. A hundredfold, 60, 30, but it does make a difference. Now here's the point. If you take Jesus' parable literally, you understand that only one quarter of the time when the gospel is preached is it received. One quarter of the time. Most of the time it is rejected. So you say to yourself, well, <laughs> who wants to do that work? Why should I do that work? All right, I want to be beautiful in the eyes of the Lord, but on the other hand, I'd like to know that I'm making a difference. Why should I do it? I'll tell you why you should do it. Because God commands us to do it. We don't need any other excuse than that. And because on the last day, when we all stand before the Lord, not a single solitary soul is going to hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and successful servant. Because God is not interested in worldly success. What God is interested in is faithfulness. Our job is to be faithful. We leave the success part of it to the Lord. Bishop Fitz Allison once said to me when I was beginning my ministry, he said, your job is to pour out the word like water and trust the Holy Spirit to turn it into wine. That's your job as well. And that's what makes for beautiful people in the eyes of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, there is a great need in the world for people to hear the gospel. We look at our culture and we despair. We see how the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. The country is a mess. And yet as Christians, we have the answer. It is to be beautiful people. It is to share the good news. It's to be like little Bilney. It is to confess the gospel, to think strategically to not rest, to not grow weary, but to be faithful, leaving the success to you, to be faithful unto death. For in your eyes, that is what it means to be lovely and beautiful. Grant us the grace, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.